Hello, I am Toby Haydock, and this is Toby Haydock's Who's Round, my most thrill-making role. Well, I will be talking very soon to a gentleman who is in the United States, so I'm going to have to speak up. Fortunately, I've got a very powerful tape recorder, so when he calls back to me, uh, I will be able to hear what he says. But the technical quality may not be as uh, of a, a higher standard as some of you might like, but uh, the content, I'm sure, will be more than satisfactory. So this is a gentleman who has been in Doctor Who but once, but he sort of brushed with it twice, and he's also uh, one of a small but illustrious band of thespes whose CV contains both Doctor Who and an entry into the Star Trek franchise. And I haven't checked this, so don't write in. Um, uh, But I also think he might be the only actor to have appeared in both Doctor Who and the A-Team. So so my thanks to Emrys Matthews, who was the gentleman that put me in touch with my interviewee, who was very keen to make contact and uh, partake in this. Uh, Oh, I do. I love it when a plan comes together. I'm turning the hose pipe off. (laughs) The hose pipe? Yes, well, I I, I have the bad news to tell you. It's the most beautiful sunny day here. And uh, the birds are singing, and uh, I'm just uh, watering the plants around the pool. I'm just saying this to make you mad. Oh, dear, dear, dear. Okay, I'm coming inside now. And I'm now going to walk through to my office, the nerve center of the organization, (laughs) and where I can sit down and we can talk. Wonderful. Now, here we are. How are you? I'm very well. How are you? I'm all right in a few places. Thank you very much indeed. (laughs) I'm not not too bad at all. Not too bad. Fire away, you lead me, give me some questions, that's the best thing to do. Okie dokie, well, if, if the first thing I ask people to do is to... Okay. ...that I ask you to introduce yourself and tell me why I'm talking to you about Doctor Who. All right, okay, well, my name is Barry Ingham. Barry Ingham? Yes, Barry Ingham. And what am I doing living in America? Well, it's the old, old story. Uh, many years ago, I was offered uh, a part here on Broadway. I came here, and I had this wonderful relationship Whenever I'm living in New York, I get offered to play in London. Whenever I'm living in London, I get offered uh, some television in uh, uh, California, what I call Hollywood. And whenever I'm living in Hollywood, uh, I'm wanted back in New York. It's ridiculous because there are three towns you can make a living as an actor. One is New York, one is London, and the other is Los Angeles. And so I, I, when people say, where do you live, I say in in, in but New Lundulies seems to be the best, uh, the best definition for the town. And so that's it. And so for the past 40 years, that's what life has been. So we've had a home in all three places. And to get out of the madness, we now live down in Palm Beach, Florida, where there is lots of sunshine. And uh, if I have to go to London, we go to London from here. And we go to New York from here. Much more sensible thing to do. So that is where I live. I am an actor who, for about 3,000 years, since the first Doctor Who, have been a professional actor. Uh, of course, I'm English, and my, my, my lovely wife, Tan, and I have four daughters and eight grandchildren. And I started my career in England, in We 
Italy repertory company on the end of Landudno Pier, worked up until I, I got a, an audition at the Old Vic in London, got into the Old Vic company, and for two years, Judy Dench and I joined on the same day, and uh, we started uh, playing small parts. She had Ophelia and I had Forty Rouse in Hamlet, worked our way up for two years in the company, and then started being offered lovely parts in the West End of London and on television. And that's what went on right through the 60s and 70s until I started my love affair with, with America. Uh, so lots and lots of British musicals, lots and lots of plays in Britain at the Mermaid Theatre at the West End, and really never stopped. It was absolutely marvellous. And lots of television series and things there, including one came up um, out of the bag, came this new series called Doctor Who. And we all said, what's Doctor Who? Doctor what? Doctor Who? And I was offered a part in it. And um, actually, that really did my television career a lot of good. Uh, to get a lot of television work, you have to be seen in something good on television. It's like which comes first, the hen of the egg. But I got this lovely part uh, of, of Paris uh, in the Doctor Who series when they were doing um, a whole uh, series called The Myth Makers, which was all about Doctor Who goes back to uh, Troy and uh, ancient, uh, ancient Greece and all that kind of thing. So I played Paris, the guy whose girlfriend caused the war, and uh, had a lot of, lot of fun playing that. But, of course, that gave me the distinct advantage of working with the great William Hartnell uh, in what was the first series of, of, of Doctor Who, uh, which turned out to be a phenomenal success. I mean, absolutely tremendous success. It's never stopped since. And uh, the unfortunate thing is that the actual tapes or videos, or whatever you want to call them, of Doctor Who were all destroyed by the BBC, but the soundtrack still exists. And uh, I have fans from all over the world who write to me to say, we enjoy your performance as Paris, but please, where, where can we get a photograph of you as Paris? They look on my website, they see photographs of me in all sorts of different plays and tellies and films and things like that. The only photograph there is of me as Paris is when I am uh, battling um, another um, Greek guy or somebody in a strange helmet and we're having a tremendous sword fight but I've got my Greek helmet on and the only way I can recognize it <laughs> is that I recognize my knees you see <laughs> uh, I've got these rather knobbly knees and I, I can swear to people whatever I send them a science photograph or, or, or in fact sell them one at one of the medical conventions I go to um, I, I say, look, I know you can't really recognize my face, but if you like, I roll my trousers up and you can see my knees and then you can see this really is the picture. And I have done it on a couple of occasions, but most, most people seem to believe me. So that's, um, that, that takes me up to Doctor Who. Now, uh, I forget what the question was, but that's how I started in my career. And um, it's rolled on ever since on films and television, television series and, and, and Royal Shakespeare Company. I've done a lot of work there the National Theatre in London, and um, anyway, ask me, ask me another question, please. I mean, you, yes, because you weren't, um, I, I, it was quite an early television for you, say, but you were still, I think, considered a, a, a name, and there's quite a quite an illustrious guest cast for the Mythmakers, with um, yourself and Max Adrian. Max Adrian, there, there were some really, really very, very good uh, names, and very good um, other up-and-coming young actors, in it, who, who were really good. Uh, this is the point about show business. Uh, something good, a good script, or a good television play.
play or a television series does attract good people. Uh, I know it sounds a truism to say that, but if you find something with a lot of good people in it, you'll usually find that the script is pretty good, because you read it and you think, whoa, this is good. Uh, so it it, uh, it makes birds of a feather fly together. Huh. Um, and do you remember, he only directed that one Doctor Who story, Michael Leaston Smith. Do you remember him, the director? Uh, remember who? Michael Leaston Smith? Yeah. Yes, but I, I, I worked in other things for him. Um, uh, after that, uh, I can't remember what they were, various things for the BBC. Uh, but, no, I, I, as far as I know, that was the only one of the Doctor Who series he did. But I don't know. I, I, I'm not an authority on, on what else he did with Doctor Who. Yeah, no, that was that was his only foray into Doctor Who. Was it really? Yeah. Was it really? Yes. So, yeah. Oh, God. And because the pictures are missing, we don't really know sort of what his direction was like. Because, uh, as you say, there's, uh, there's, there's not an awful lot of visual material left, sadly. No, no, exactly. I know it's very successful at the time. We all enjoyed very much doing it. And there's uh, some lovely, lovely uh, lines in it. I, no, I, I remember him doing a nice, well felt. Um, I, I never saw it, of course, because I was working in theatre in the evening, so I couldn't see it when it went out. But we all felt that he did a very, very nice job with it. I, oh, wouldn't it be wonderful if somewhere in the BBC archives, some cleaning lady was mopping up the floor and she came across an old can of film and it said Doctor Who on it, 1960s, Leeson Smith. Wouldn't that be great? Stranger things, stranger things have happened. Yes, well, we'll keep our fingers crossed. <laughs> um, and, uh, it's, I mean, it is, as you say, it's very funny. I think it's quite ahead of its time because your Paris is not the classical hero of romantic literature. He's more of a sort of, sort of feckless toff. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. Oh, yeah, they, 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 they satirise the characters very much, I think. And, and the old uh, 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 um Max Adrian, I didn't mean older Max Adrian, but I mean the older character of Max Adrian. That was very, very funny, and played in a rather, a rather sort of camp way by Max Adrian, uh, because he, 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 again, they were taking the Mickey out of the character. So it was, it was good, but it was tongue in cheek at the same time, which good satire tent has to be. And Doctor Who, when it's at its best, does have a lovely edge of humour in it. I think that's when it, when it does work at its very best. And um, do, do, you, what, do you remember William Hartnell? Of course, absolutely, yes. I mean, the one thing uh, I, I was very impressed with, I'd never done any movies uh, before I did uh, uh, Doctor Who, and I came in on the first day, and there were all the chairs round for the first read-through, and there was a director's chair. And I'd never seen a director's chair before with the canvas on the back, and there, emblazoned in big letters, was William Hartnell written across his chair. I thought, oh dear, this, he's either a very big star, because I'd seen him in, in British movies, and the wartime movies, and that kind of thing. I thought, well, this guy must be a big star, or he has the most enormous ego. <laughs> and um, so I saw people keep going up to him, and he'd mutter a word, like the one of his mouth, and they'd rush away and go to the phone. And say, I thought, what's going on? So I spoke to one guy, I said, why do you keep going up to Mr. Hartnell and asking him something? He said, you know, he's the best racing tipster in the whole of the country. What he doesn't know about horses isn't worth knowing. And it was amazing. People were winning on his horses' tips. Now, I don't know where he got them from. And I, I, I don't know what he did in the evening. So he must have been going around all the stables. But he was a brilliant, brilliant uh, racing um, uh, aficionado. And, and, and so I, I sort of thought, I thought that'll, that'll break the ice. 
So I, I said, Mr. Hartnell, I understand you're very interested in horses. He said, no, I'm not. Oh. I said, what are you interested in? He said, I'm interested in winning on horses. Oh, <laughs> I said, that's very different. Yeah. So that broke the eyes. He was rather, he was rather brusque, but always with a twinkle in his eye. And, uh, and I thought, well, I'll, I'll, I'll dare it. I'll, I'll chance it. I say, may, may I ask you, um, I said, why, why, why do you have your name written onto your chair? And looked at me and said, because other b- keep coming up and sitting in it. That's why. <laughs> so I thought he had a very good idea, and nobody de- nobody went and sat in William Hartnell's chair, I can assure you. So whenever he finished a scene, he went and talked in his own chair, and obviously had, had, had the best idea uh, in, 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 in rehearsal studios to do that. But he was great fun. He was great fun. Un- underneath, he, he was very brusque and uh, no nonsense, but a lovely, lovely sense of humor underneath it. And is your, I'm assuming where your, your heart is in um, the theatre. I mean, the, the, uh, I hope those listening will know that, you know, when you talk about you were at the RSC, you weren't just at the RSC, you were Leontes to Judy Dench's Hermione, you uh, yes. played Brutus in Julius Caesar. So, was, yes, lots of Shakespeare. Were, were people reluctant, actors who came from classical theatre, reluctant to do um, television when it was a new medium, or were they... Oh, no, 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 they were standing in line to do it. Because what it did, of course, was immediately, you can act for uh, maybe 50 years in theatre, and if you're in a theatre with 800 people, I don't know what the maths is, but that still isn't millions of people, is it? Whereas one good television play uh, in those days, uh, when there were only four channels, Everybody in the country saw you, and you suddenly, if you were good, and if it was good, you became more famous more quickly than being good slowly in theatre could do. Mind you, it was always this way, wasn't it? In the old days of, of you know, the early days of uh, Laurence Olivier and Vivian Lee and people like that, they were all great theatre names, but as soon as uh, Alexander Corder put them into movies, and uh, people like Ralph Richardson... You know, they became stars overnight. Well, television sort of replaced that thing of British movies, and suddenly you could become famous overnight, and then the better known you were on television, the better theatre parts you were offered. So one helped the other. I found, uh, you know, I did a telly, I got a theatre, I got a play from that. I did a play, I got a telly from it. And it was like tennis. It was like climbing the ladder. Uh, One helped the other tremendously. I think it's very different nowadays, because every week there were... Oh, Granada put a play of the week on, and, and ABC Sunday Night Theatre. There were lots and lots and lots of good plays put on television in those days, uh, which you could just go into, rehearse for two weeks, do it, and, and out you came again. And uh, now you've really got to hook up to a series or uh, a longer, a longer um, term in something like um, Coronation Street, which is going on forever. I mean, I did one for my sins when I was doing my last uh, play in New York. Uh, which uh, was Jekyll and Hyde, and I did that for three years, it was four years ago now, they said, would I, in the daytimes, play a running part in a soap? And I said, well, I've never done a soap before. What do you do? He said, you just turn up at 7 o'clock in the morning, you get your lines, you learn them, and uh, you're home by 11. I said, well, that's that's very nice. Is it good money? And it it was very good money, so I said, right, lead me to it. So I was doing Jekyll and Hyde, and I was doing a soap in the day. And I found that um, I, I, I went in there, and I said, how long has this been on? They said, 21 years. I said, what? 
the, this same television series is on for 21 years, and the writer said yes. And I said, when, uh, how long, how much longer is it going to go on? They said, it's going to go on forever. I said, why? He said, because we don't know how to end it. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> that, uh, you know, well, Coronation Street and, and the East Enders, I suppose, are the best example of that, isn't it? Yeah. If somebody wrote an ending to Coronation Street, they could finish it, but they don't know how to end it. No, too much to tie up. Bring Ina Sharples back with a hair net. That's the only way to finish it off. And, and that Jekyll and Hyde was directed by um, Robin Phillips, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Yes, uh, it was. Who in his acting um, days, he acted in a William Hartnell Doctor Who story as well. Did he? I yeah. never knew that. Oh, my gosh, the people who've gone through them. Did he really in a William Hartnell one? Yes. Yeah. Yes, yeah, called The Keys of Marinus. It was a, a year or so, a couple of years before yours. Yeah. yeah. You see, I mean, I never knew Robin in England, but, uh, you know, you used to see him on television. And, and that's how television becomes a village, because... Uh, you, you work with somebody and you think you know them, but in fact you, you see them on television, so you immediately feel uh, they are the person they've played, you know. It's, uh, it's, it's a wonderful business. I, I absolutely love it. And I love the people in it. I love actors, I love writers, I love uh, directors, cameramen. The whole thing about show business, it's wonderful. It's about, it's about making dreams come true, and it's, it's so exciting. But, uh, to hear what you were saying, my, my deepest, deepest, greatest love is, is Shakespeare, I must admit. And when I'm over here in, in, in America, I, I do a lot of uh, uh, lectures and, and, and talks on, you know, Shakespeare, the development of his style, the acting style, and that kind of thing, you know. And um, I'm constantly being, being asked to uh, uh, <laughs> give Shakespeare recitals and things like that, you know. But there's a great, there's a great hunger for it in America. And uh, it's it's very useful just to be able to try out a bit of Shakespeare every now and then. Are they good at it in America? Yes, they are. People like Kevin Kline, very 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 fine American actors, and Shakespeare is done a lot here. And all over the states, you'll find you go to a town and you find that there there is like in in Odessa, Texas, Midland Odessa, right in the middle of nowhere. All they do is pump oil there. There is a beautiful replica of Shakespeare's Globe, which was built in the 70s. It's absolutely beautiful, and I've played in it. Uh, well, I've taken my one-man show there and given a talk in it, you know. And um, it's really beautiful, a, a perfect replica. And th there's another one in San Diego. And all over they have uh, replicas of, of Shakespeare, and they have Shakespeare festivals all over the place. They're touring companies. It's absolutely amazing how much Shakespeare does go on here. Is, is there a Shakespeare part that you've not played that you covered? No, I, 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 I used to cover Hamlet, but I'm too old to play Hamlet now. I have played King Lear, which I, I, I did enjoy very much. Uh, and and uh, I remember John Gilgood years ago saying to me, one day you'll be old enough to play King Lear, but let me give you some advice. I said, what's that? He said, get a light Cordelia. <laughs> Because of Shakespeare, you, 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 you shut your guts out for three and a half hours, and then you have to come in carrying the dead body of your daughter, shouting howl, howl, howl to heaven as you do so. And I did it, and uh, you mustn't do it in the slippery stage, but for goodness sake, get a very, very light daughter, because you're tired at that time. It was very good advice, actually. It was quite light. And, yeah. and you, did, you did it in Ludlow, where it was uh, uh, I did. outdoors. In, oh, in that beautiful castle. Open and it was just terrific. Uh, it was just for three weeks, and it was just great to be to be uh, doing it with real rain and with uh, 
uh, real clouds, and it was absolutely wonderfully atmospheric to be in the outdoors. I'll never forget it. It was a wonderful experience to do it. But uh, no, Le Leontes is my favourite ever part, uh, along with Leah. But Leontes, uh, playing Leontes with, with Judy Dench, directed by Trevor Nunn, it was absolutely a remarkable thing to do, a remarkable piece of theatre. But they never filmed that one either. They haven't what, sorry? They never filmed that. Did they not? Uh, and Greg Zorin, who's the head of the company now, he's put together uh, some DVDs that are selling like hotcakes of all the uh, the highlights from Shakespearean productions on record, just, just on sound, from the 30s right through up to the present day. And he chose uh, Judy Dench and Elizabeth Spriggs and I, the, the recording that we had done then, uh, uh, to, to be on that. And it's just great listening to it. It, uh, it, was a, it was a tremendous, tremendous piece of theatre. Well, and we haven't mentioned film. Not only you played Robin Hood uh, yes. on film. That, 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 yes. A, a small but illustrious bevy of actors have done that. <laughs> well, I have, uh, let, let's say, three, when you, when you say uh, great firsts, um, my, first, my, my first thing w was to be in the first series of Doctor Who with William Hartnell. Um, my second first, believe it or not, is to be the first Robin Hood on film. Aha, they say, Richard Green. No, I say, to the best of my knowledge, he was a superstar of, of, of Robin Hood on, on, on television, a long-running series, but I don't think he made a film of it. But they told me, they said, you are the first British, the first English uh, Robin Hood in the first English, and it was Hammer Productions who did it. We called it Hammer Goes Legit. And um, it was the first English uh, English Robin Hood. Um, a great historian like you, you can probably correct me if I'm wrong, but I've been laboring under that assumption for years. And the other first was that also um, I was in the first Doctor Who movie, uh, in which I played Alidon uh, in, in um, Doctor Who and the Daleks, the first one, with, with Peter Cushing playing Doctor Who. So those are my, my three screen firsts that I'm rather proud of. Well, yes, indeed, and that leads us very neatly to the uh, the, the Dalek film, where you're, uh, you're a vision in uh, in eyeliner, uh, <laughs> and uh, a very different Doctor Who with uh, Peter Cushing. Well, have you ever seen anything like it? I mean, I, I said, what are we supposed to be? They said, well, you are the leader of the goodies, the files, and when they show me the costume design, it looked like something for Danny LaRue. And I said, but you do as I've got to go home every night and, and face my wife. You know, well, you take your makeup off first. I said, I'd better or I'll get arrested driving home because I had a, uh, I had a sort of pale blue body tint and, and, and false eyelashes and uh, mascara and, and gold lipstick. And, and the flowers look very pretty. And for my, um, my buddy flowers, they got a lot of really tough guy Covent Garden porters, you know, from the fruit market. Guys with rippling sheet muscles. I had to pump up mine, I can tell you. And uh, that was my army of fowls. And they took exception to the fact that the costume department said, now, because you're wearing these uniforms that are split from the shoulders nearly down to the waist, you've got to shave the hair off your chest. And all these guys said, well, I'm not shaving hair off my chest. No, no. I mean, it was, it was asking them to lose their virility to have the, the hair and the chest shaved. And, but finally, they agreed, money conquers everything. And I remember the final agreement was that they would get one pound ten shillings a day extra 
if they shave their chest. And the following day, we had everybody with clean chests. It's wonderful <laughs> how money talks, isn't it? <laughs> oh, yeah. So if you look, you won't see a hair on the chest of any fowl. And uh, you, uh, you, the, the, the hairy situations, though, were provided by uh, the Daleks, who, of course, are as famous as Doctor Who. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, yes, yes. Do you they, see why, and, and how were they to work with? Oh, they're terrific. I mean, they had, they had the same operators who worked them for the, you know, for the BBC television. And uh, they were just, Gordon Fleming, who was directing it, uh, you can't help but love Daleks. I mean, it's awful when they're pursuing you, and they're, and they're saying stop, stop, destroy, destroy. You sort of they're like pets. You want to take them home, even though they're killers. I don't know what the charm of a Dalek is, but they certainly are adorable little killers. I think they bring out all your own childhood world when you were little, and you wanted to punch people who were bigger than you because they pushed you around, and and somehow. Uh, you know, Daleks can do it, but they're terribly vulnerable because they can't turn around very quickly. And if you open the top and drop a bomb inside, you know, they're very easily destroyable. They're vulnerable, lovable little monsters. I don't know what it is, but I, we really enjoyed the... I enjoyed co-starring with the Daleks. I really did. Well, no, let's say that they were the stars. Peter Cushing and the Daleks were the stars. And uh, that, that fulfilled their Peter Cushing was an orphan. I thought he was a very good Doctor Who. Pete, he was a very serious guy. Um, uh, when I say serious, he took his work terribly seriously. And he, the, the first day I shot up at, uh, wherever it was, was he Shepherd or Pinewood? Uh, was in a scene with, with him, just sitting uh, in the campfire having a chat. And it was my first day, you know, and I got all my blue makeup on. I was feeling a bit silly and a bit nervous. And we sat down by the fire. I'd never met him before. And he made a point of shaking me by the hand, telling me what his name was, as if I didn't know what his name was, you know. And sat down, and uh, he said to me, Oh, aren't first mornings awful? I said, Why? He said, I always feel terribly nervous before the first take. I don't suppose you do, do you? And when, I thought the great Peter Cushing is actually making me feel at my ease. And I thought that was a wonderful thing to do. And immediately my nervousness left me. And I thought, oh, I feel exactly the same as he does, and, and he feels the same as me. And we went ahead and did the scene. Now, that is the mark of a true gentleman and a very fine actor. Who will do that? Yeah, how lovely. Um, <clears throat> and, uh, I mean, it's a certain amount of guilt with which I contacted you, Barry, because you've had this extraordinary career, and we use Doctor Who as the leaping-off point. But... Um, <laughs> You know, it's just a, 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 a one of many entries on a on a great CV. So, um, when you were working on TV in in England, what were yep. the what were the television jobs that that are that remain closest to your heart? Well, I was just thinking about one. It's very funny. I've had such a variety, but there was one play which was terrific because Gore Vidal died a couple of months ago, uh, and and I, you know I I knew him somewhat, but he wrote a wonderful play called On the March to the Sea. And he came over to London and did it for the BBC. And uh, he came in and immediately fired the guy who was playing uh, uh, the, the man whose house we burnt down. So uh, we got Joss Ackland into it, and Joss was superb. And um, I was playing this this mad uh, uh, Union Army officer who was on Sheridan's march uh, to the sea from Atlanta to uh, to uh, Savannah when he just could have swathed the country and burnt all the big, beautiful plantation houses down on the way. 
and this was the story of one 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 night when this guy comes to burn the place down and the conversations between him and him. one wonderful play um that was tremendously good play um we used to do <laughs> i sound like just to see the cat but some of the plays that were done on 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 television in Britain were quite extraordinary. I mean, good theatre plays. Uh, Leonard Rossiter and I did one, but that was good. But so many of the... I, I, I did enjoy doing so much, like a series called The Victorians uh, for Granada, in which uh, Philip Mackey got, uh, got eight famous Victorian plays from 1830 through to 1900. And uh, many of the roles have been played by Henry Irving. And he had just a small company. There was John Wood, myself, Ingrid Hassan, Pat Garwood, uh, just about the four of us. There's a central uh, Michael Michael Barrington, uh, um, uh, Charlie Kay, and we, we were just a, a, a small group, and we played these wonderful, wonderful Victorian plays. Well, they, they don't do series like that anymore. They were just terrific, and they should be done again. And there were plays which were big hits when they were first done, like like The Silver King. Uh, and and um, two roses, one of Hen- one of Henry Irving's greatest hits, and th- th- they were wonderful and, and 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 top top viewers rating. A series I enjoyed doing very much was I I, I did my own series called Hein H I N E in the seventies, mm-hmm. at the same time as I was doing um, a Royal Shakespeare Company, and uh, that was a wonderful series. We did thirteen episodes for Lou Grade, uh, but. Uh, we didn't do any more. It became a political hot potato because it was about a crooked arms dealer. I love playing crooks. And the, the crooked arms dealer who was flogging to both sides, uh, flogging to uh, Arabic countries and uh, to countries that were, were trying to blow up other countries. And it all got a little bit politically hot. And I think people had words with Lou Grades. And, and episode, series two was very quietly dropped it got to number three in the ratings, and um, I had some tremendous uh, 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 reactions to that one. But I picked up a copy of it the other day, on, on, uh, and they do it on, on eBay, and there, there I am, back in the 1970s, playing Joe Hine, and it's not half bad. So if anybody's got some spare cash, go and buy one. It's a very, very good series, very well written, and did a lot of good. Uh-huh. One I did, what one I did recently uh, for American TV was uh, uh, called The Triangle, which is about the Bermuda Triangle, where I play the uh, the ex uh, head of the U.S. Navy, you know, one of these kind of guys, you know, an ex admiral kind of guy. Uh, and at one point, I had to sit on a bed, unscrew my false leg, and wave it in the air, telling people how I'd lost this in an atomic explosion. And I, uh, and when they they called me. The direct, I was in England, and the director called me from, from uh, South Africa where they were shooting it. And he said, just one problem, do you mind having your leg off? And I said, well, can't you do it without my taking my leg off? He said, no, well, you can always play Long John Silver after that. <laughs> I said, oh, thanks very much. But luckily, we were able to do it with a prosthetic by shoving my own leg through the mattress. Uh, but uh, it's quite a good scene. Um, it's one thing to no, shave your chest, it's another to chop your leg off. <laughs> yes. No, but I, I, they couldn't find a parrot, so I was excused. I was excused playing it in Long John Silver. But oh, I don't know so much. That that so many really, really good plays. However, apart from that, um, the the series have been fun, and I've also enjoyed doing all all the Hollywood stuff. You know, I loved. Uh, there was a great movie I did in in in, in Hollywood. Uh, 
called My Wicked Wicked Ways, in which I played John Barrymore. And uh, it dealt with Errol Flynn and John Barrymore's increasing drinking problem. You know, it's a wonderful, wonderful showy part. And uh, I remember there's one scene, which is an absolute true story. We had great difficulty in filming it when um, the, uh, um, uh, Errol Flynn comes back uh, late at night, he's been out of the booze because he's been mourning the fact that his friend Jan John Barrymore has died from cirrhosis of the liver and various other complications of a lifetime of drinking. And unbeknown to him, his friend uh, Raoul Walsh, the film director, had gone down to the morgue in Hollywood and tipped the, the guy in charge of the mortuary to borrow Barrymore's body. And they bent it back into shape again because rigor mortis already set in took the body of John Barrymore back to Errol Flynn's house, bent the legs, sat it in a chair, and sat there with a glass of scotch. So when Errol came in, his old pal could have a drink with him again, you see. And so they put that scene into the movie. And so they give me a nice dead makeup um, after I'd finished playing all my living parts, sat down in the chair, and then they put a glass of scotch in my hand and said, now, be very still, and... They were just about to start it, uh, but when they realized, of course, that my, my hand was moving ever so slightly, even if your heart beats, it's very hard to hold a liquid and keep it absolutely still. So eventually we settled for having the glass on the chair arm and my hand near it, and my eyes open, looking straight ahead, and I thought, this is fine, and I held my breath, and the director said, okay, Barry, action. And, of course, I split my sides laughing. I said, how can you say action to a corpse? What am I supposed to do? I'm dead. <laughs> uh, he said, well, just be dead. <laughs> but that's the kind of crazy things that happen in filming, you know, saying action to a dead man. I don't know what he expected me to do. But that part was a, a, a great deal of fun. And um, it's all been fun. It's all been fun. In fact, what I'm doing now is fun. I'm, I'm giving a whole series of lectures on, on Shakespeare and on the British film industry. Um, I'm doing a six-month contract of lectures down here in Palm Beach, and uh, I don't want to make you cry when you think of that, but it's beautiful. <laughs> but, but I must say, this is the funny thing. The other day, I am still an associate artist of the of the uh, Shakespeare Company, you see, and uh, my agent called the other day and said, Barry, are you old now? I said, oh, yes. Oh, very old, about 140 years. Uh, Judy Dench and I are the same age, and she's not old, but I am, yes. I said, why? She said, well, because I'm looking through um, um, what the films are going to make in England over this next year, and the television plays they're going to do, uh, and the plays they're going to do, and since Judy and Maggie have had such a success in that film about the Indian Hotel, and another success now uh, with, with Quartet, they, everybody has got to be old. Everybody's got to be over 70 to be in a movie. I said, count me in. Count me in. She said, oh. <laughs> Well, can I put you up for things? I said, you could put me up for anything from 70 to 150, and I'll never stop working this year. So I shall be coming back. So look out for every, every, every old part you see is going to be me on television with a different wig on. Excellent. Oh, good. It's, it's, the, age to be, it's the age to be, so age up quick. Okay. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm 39 going on 70. Oh, well, double it. Double it quick. Okay. Immediately. <laughs> immediately. Never be out of work. It's wonderful. Well, and, and science fiction fans being what they are, I suspect it hasn't uh, escaped your attention, Barry, that you are one of the few people to have done both Doctor Who and Star Trek. I know, I know. That, uh, isn't that amazing? With my old pal uh, Patrick Stewart. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. 
and and when when I do the, the, these conventions, uh, you know, when you sit down and you and you, you, you sign your autographs, of course, not like William Shatner. I mean, <laughs> whenever Patrick comes to one of these conventions, or William Shatner, the big stars, you know, I mean, uh, it's it's like a military operation, as you probably know, isn't it? They just sit there, the people are wheeled in, a quick photograph with them, out of the other door. Wheeled in, quick photograph, out of the other door. And they just stay for two hours and leave with their pockets full of money, or their agents' pockets full of money, you know, having signed photographs for about 2,000 people in two hours, and away they go. No, but um, we, we other, uh, other mortals who've appeared in science fiction things sit down and people come up and they, they remember which particular role you've played and that kind of thing, and you sign the appropriate photograph. And it's tremendous fun meeting fans of of, um, uh, of various things like Doctor Who and like the the Star Trek and um, and and even some of of the Triangle, for instance. They, I have a great deal of time for the the the, the science fiction crowd. They're, they're um, you know they're they're very dedicated to the subject matter. The scripts have got to be pretty good because they don't pass scrutiny with these guys. And uh, they're, they're in, very interesting, the whole subject of science fiction, and I, I enjoy meeting them a lot. Can, can you see what the appeal is? Why is it that science fiction in particular seems to um, create this great adherence to it? i tell you why. Because science fiction mostly is projected to another world, or to another existence, or to H.G. Willian time existing. It has replaced or enhanced um, the feeling that people used to get and now sadly very few get, uh, from religion. And uh, it has become, in a way, uh, many things about it are, are, are quite holy grailish, like uh, what is time about, is there space travel, is there life on other worlds, uh, uh, beam me up, Scotty, can we do space travel, can our spirits travel, can our bodies travel, all these kind of questions are there. And uh, it's a total escape from the humdrum material world. It's it's um, a sort of exercise of the imagination and, and the spirit, and the, it's combined the two together very nicely, I think. Well, I promised I'd only take up 20 minutes of your time, and I've almost doubled to that, so apologies for that. <laughs> um, but Sorry, I, I, I'll think of all sorts of things I should have said afterwards, but um, all, 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 all I can say, if I had one encapsulating statement, and that's this. Um, I have loved my career in show business. According to my agent, my second career is now going to come when Judy Dench, Maggie Smith, and I will be playing old people for the rest of our lives for the next 50 years, and that's wonderful. There's always something else to look forward to. I know when John Gilbert died at the age of 96, he had three films on offer. <laughs> so, you know, and, and I remember Brian Bertha said to him, well, what do you do when you're 96? He said, you play 96-year-old men. <laughs> That's absolutely true. It's a wonderful business, and no other business do you do that. You're sort of retired, aren't you? And you play what you are at that moment, and that's great. That's good. Um, and I've enjoyed it. I am enjoying it, and I shall enjoy it. But I really, really, it's awfully nice to meet fans and people who, who've seen your work or who are interested in the same kind of things that you're interested in, like okay. Shakespeare, for instance. I, I do ask, um, uh, well, there's three things. I say, if the Myth Makers ever does turn up, um, oh, oh. I, I, I hope we can get you back to the UK to do something on the DVD for it. Oh, you bet. Absolutely, absolutely. Oh, you, I've, got you, a feeling, I've got a feeling it will. I, I've got an itch somehow, but there's so many people looking for it. 
it must be somewhere. There must be, it must have played in Fiji, and there must be an old tape lying around somewhere. Yeah, or somebody took it home for their kid to play, and it's still behind their telly or something, you know. They, 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 because they did exist, and they were sent all over the world, weren't they? Yeah. These tapes, because everywhere in the world played a Doctor Who and showed that thing. So, and you didn't transmit it electronically then. They had to go by tape. And those tapes. So, has everybody all over the world destroyed those tapes, or did they have to return to the BBC? I don't know. I don't know. I'm looking for the one that was lost. I want the one that fell off the back of a lorry. So, anybody listening, if anybody can find the myth makers, find it, please. And, and uh, do, do you come back to the UK often? Oh, whenever I can, yes. Uh, I've been very busy. I've not been back for 18 months because I've just been working here solid non-stop. Uh, but we hope to be back this summer, you know. Excellent. And uh, I, have to, I have two questions that I ask everybody. One of them's nice, one of them's a silly question. Okay. Um, uh, the, the nice one is because you've kindly given your time for, for, for free, and I don't get paid for this, and we don't charge <laughs> these, these podcasts, we do ask the listeners to donate to a charity, and I, I ask you, my subject, my victim, to uh, nominate a charity close to their heart. Absolutely. Uh, Red Cross International Disaster Relief Fund. Lovely. Uh, yeah. read. So if, if, if listeners have enjoyed this, if they can uh, make it... Oh, right, that would be wonderful. That would be wonderful, yes. Yes, uh, it really would. And Doctor Who, Barry, is 50 years old this year. It's done yes. 23rd of November 1963, the day after Kennedy's assassination. Wow. Uh, people are still watching it to this day. So what's your message to all those Doctor Who fans out there on this its anniversary year? The message is that the message of Doctor Who <coughs> continues. The whole message of the whole message of Doctor Who is summed up in that wonderful dedication to John Lennon. Imagine the day you stop imagining, you're dead. Wonderful, Barry Ingham. Thank you very much for your time. Okay. All right. <laughs> Thanks, Let's keep uh, in touch. Extremely comfy. Okay. Bye bye. Thank you. Take care. Bye bye. That was great. Bye. You. Bye. Heartfelt thanks to Barry for giving his time. I could have talked to him for a lot longer. A delightful fellow. His charity you can find at www.redcross.org.uk. Give if you can. Now, coming up, I'm going to be talking to a Luddite, a butler, an ice soldier, and... Uh, a couple of costume designers in my sights as well so plenty of stuff till to come so uh, carry on listening and until the next time warp warp coming soon from Big Finish Productions Jago and Lightfoot Series 5 you see we were sent forward through time by a mysterious fella Name of the Doctor. <laughs> it's a long story. Little ones, protect your mother. My followers, take them. How? Oh, no, you don't. Any? Be careful. hi God save the British Queen. The difference between a lizard and an eagle. One's against the law, the other's a sick bird. Henry Gordon Yeager. Corks! <laughs> ah, corks! <laughs> I go for a swim. <laughs> Chef, where are you? <laughs> What's he done to his face? Oh, he's packing himself in food colouring. He's meant to be flowers, daft luminifies. Oh, be careful. The 
pages of Fragile. Oh no. You are all food for the great one. Mama's hungry. Needs a flexible girl assistant, otherwise the stage would be a one. Henry! Oh, don't, don't worry, I just slipped. The floor here is a bit wet. Wet? <laughs> yes, all right. But apart from the cinema, less poverty, the National Health Service, women's suffrage, comprehensive education, aviation, heart transplants, and a man on the moon, what else does this decade have going for it? Miniskirts? All right, all right, you may have a point. Subscribers get more at bigfinish.com.